Welcome to the Molecular Moments Podcast. In today's episode, we sat down with our guest, Adam Stasio, president of SciMed, a company based in Durham, North Carolina, uh, to talk about his experience with uh, software engineering. Uh, he's a software developer with over 15 years of experience solving complex software development challenges and leading development teams. He's passionate about making processes easier, faster, and more efficient while creating happy clients, something that we have in common with you from our bioagilytic side of things. As president of SciMed, he's involved in all aspects of the business, leads projects with clients from primary investigators in immunology to bioinformatics and lab technicians in agricultural research. Adam, thanks for joining the Molecular Moments podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on here. I had the pleasure of being on your podcast a couple of months back. So we're trying to return the favor. And I think come at it from, from your perspective. We talked a lot about biogenetics on your uh, podcast. So we'll talk about SciMed on, on our podcast here. So welcome. Tell us a little bit about um, how you got here, why uh, this is an area that interests you and kind of the role that you play uh, at your company and also with your customers in the software development standpoint. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. Um, in terms of uh, the background and how I got here, I took a look at the world a long time ago when I was in high school and college and, and looked at what the opportunities were. And um, I was very interested in problem solving, uh, finding ways to make things faster, easier, and um, push technology forward. Uh, not necessarily just technology, but um, when it comes to tools to make things faster and easier. Um, technology and um, computer programming at the time were, were definitely the things to, to look at. Um, and then from there, I think there's a lot of things you can do with that type of technology, but I have a lot of interest in learning about and um, helping to move forward science and medicine, those types of things. So, um, you know, there's lots of ways that you could be software development for a bank or um, missile defense or whatever you like. Uh, and this is the, the area that I was interested in. So um, I've been spending, I've been lucky enough to spend the last 15 or 20 years learning about um, the two things that I like and how to, how to fit them together. Uh, and, and I really love helping people solve, helping people in any way, but helping people solve problems. Um, so it's a great position for me because I get to go out there and listen to all sorts of problems and think about how to, um, how we can help. So it's been great. Yeah, that's great. And it's it's something I think that we both have in common. I, I, as a scientist in biotech and pharma, um, I typically summarize my job as problem solving. I think we all do it to some degree, but I think in particular in the drug development space, problem solving oftentimes um, can be quite complex, incredibly uh, complex integrated systems. Uh, a lot of data at times, which I want to get into with you about sort of how you think about that, because um, I think we're challenged oftentimes in our business almost with too much data, so much information, trying to figure out how to integrate that, how to process that, uh, and how to learn from it. Uh, and, and it's definitely an area that I want us to focus on during the podcast here. So tell me a little bit about sort of the typical experience of SciMed and how you work with customers. What are the the common requests, the areas where SciMed really adds value to the drug development or biology or pharma development process? Um, I'll answer that. Let me just touch on one thing you said for a moment. You said you also think of yourself as a problem solver. Um, 
and to some extent that's that's all of our jobs i think that there's um an attitude and a perspective that matters there because you can take an, a person or a job where their job is problem solving you know you could be i do bioinformatics my job is to figure out how to um you know determine the type of bacteria you know we need to do some gene processing um and then as you start to work on the pro on the pro on your job you can think about oh no another problem oh no another problem uh this isn't going well every time is a setback and it can kind of knock you down and i think it closes down your thinking but if you can take the opposite approach and say that these problems are expected these hurdles are things that are going are normal and my job is not to get the job done without having hit any problems my job is to solve the problems along the way uh it sort of opens up your thinking um so that's that's a perspective that i i think matters um and makes makes problem solving enjoyable instead of painful um that's a great that's a great perspective i i i will admit i i think we in practice think of it that way but oftentimes it doesn't come across. It seems like it's a burden. It's it's troubleshooting, right? And and you're you're leading with trouble in that definition as opposed to solving problems, which is far more proactive, a better feel for it. And I think one of the topics that I want us to touch on is really that that learning, not so much to solve particular problems, but the learning that we take from that activity. How do we apply it to the next challenge, the next opportunity? So that we can have a whole different problem to solve, but we fix one thing and open the door to something else. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, that, that's something. So let's let's talk a little bit about sort of SciMed first, and then and then we can talk about uh, just some of the things that maybe we have in common between our businesses. So how does SciMed work with your with your uh, companies? What do you bring to the table to assist them? Yeah. So when people come along and um, ask for our help. There are occasionally people who come with a problem statement. They say, we're having trouble managing our data. We have too much data. We have data that's messy or inconsistent. Uh, we're trying to do analysis and it's taking too long. Um, those types of things. In a lot of cases, they've already started the problem solving process. And instead of saying, here's the problem, they'll say, we need this solution. You know, We need this a piece of software to manage this data. We need a piece of software that looks like this. We need a database. A lot of times people come along and say, what we need is a database when probably I'm looking at it and they say, I say, okay, well, you need um, some servers over here and you need a database over there and you need a, a data analysis pipeline. You know, you need a lot of pieces. They think, how do I manage my data, right? That's the, that's the issue. So sometimes they do come along and say, here's the way I want to solve the problem. So we're happy to, to do that if they, you know, do it the way that they're asking. But we also try to step back and ask a few questions about um, their goals and uh, underlying issues to make sure we understand the whole picture. Um, and they do that in in a number of different areas. Um, so, you know, biotech is is a broad space. Uh, some of our clients are not even in biotech, uh, strictly speaking, but um, vaccine development, microbial research, cancer treatment. Some of this is hospital-based clinical. Some of it's um, um, businesses that are not even doing science or medicine. But basically, they come along with... Um, data that they need to be able to manage, analyze. A sharing is also a piece of this. Um, you might have collaborators or clients or um, end users who need to be able to upload data so that you have access to it, or you might be doing some processing and need to get data out to end users. So there are questions about how do we do account management, make sure the right users can see the right things. Um, 
you know, it's easy to have a data. One thing you could do is you could set up a database and give, just make it public on the internet. And um, then everybody has access to the data they need. Uh, but of course, there's, there are these questions about permissions and security and authentication. So um, if you have a data set, we can think about how can we make it easier to manage it, interact with it, keep it consistent, clean, um, and make it accessible to the right set of users. So how often do you run into some of those security issues and how much does SciMed play a role in that? Um, you know, there's a, a major push for maintaining people's personal health information privately. Uh, a lot of concern about some of the genetic information that's being captured from people and being shared. And um, I, I can see it both ways, right? As the scientist, I want more data. I think it always helps from a decision-making standpoint for us to learn that way. But I certainly uh, understand some of the concern around people knowing too much and, and perhaps using it improperly. So where, where does SciMed sit in that space? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's something that we're thinking about and working on all the time. Um, it's not terribly difficult for us to set up authentication and permissions and security and encryption. Those are things, in part, probably because we do it so often, but um, those are things that almost always matter. It, it's, it's very rare that the case is all of this data is public. It can be publicly accessible. There's nothing we need to worry about. So um, almost every time we touch the keyboard, we need to be, you know, the system needs to have authentication, encryption, um, end-to-end, -end and all those types of things. And especially on the research front, um, you know, the, the goals and importance of security have been increasing over the years. Um, on, the, on the medical front, uh, with HIPAA and patient medical data, the, you know, the, it's already a very tight in terms of what the rules are and regulations and those types of things. So, um, yeah, but those are normal, normal problems to, or, or normal things to set up. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about the, the big data sets. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Um, my, my company, Bio, Bioagilytics, we're in the business of generating data to support clinical trials. Um, there's a lot of data that we provide, and we're simply one part of the overall process of information. I think um, people that have never been involved in a clinical trial before or in research don't realize exactly how much information there is to sort through. Uh, when you work with clients, what are their typical challenges with all of this data? How does SciMed sort of step in and provide support to them? Yeah, good. that's a great question. One of the things I'll say is it's easy to think to sort of um, think big data, oh, that, that's obviously a problem. How are we gonna solve it? Uh, how are we gonna like just make use of the data? I think we can break that problem down a little bit and talk about the ways that having a, a huge amount of data cause problems. Um, one that's obvious uh, is that going through it and, and running any process, any analysis or bioinformatics scripts or anything like that can be quite slow on a large data set. Even doing mundane actions like finding a three or five records that you want to find, if you have five billion, it can be uh, quite slow. Um, it can kind of slow down every part of the process. So we can talk about optimization and tools to let you work through large data sets. Um, but there are some other issues that come with large data sets. These also may occur in small data sets, but they're usually a lot easier to find and fix. So when we talk about inconsistent data, um, it could, this could be typos, this could be um, 
different people using the same terms for the same thing. So sort of synonyms. Um, also, where does the data come from? If you have a small data set, it probably comes from one place. If you have a huge amount of data, it's likely coming from and potentially being stored in multiple places. So um, those are, you know, those are some of the problems that come with large data sets. And each one has their own set of things to think about and sort of sets of solutions to look at. Um, I can think for a second about which one might be most interesting to talk about. Are there any of those that sound interesting to you or seem like the biggest issue from your perspective? So I, I certainly think from our perspective, inconsistent data uh, is a big roadblock to efficiencies in our process. Uh, if you think about from a clinical trial standpoint where uh, drug study is being conducted at three different clinical sites, we're getting tubes and samples that are coming from all three locations. Maybe they're not labeled the same. Maybe the information isn't filled out uh, exactly the same in each manifest. All of that has to get resolved. We have to maintain that chain of custody of the sample, the integrity of the sample. And oftentimes, a lot of effort is spent on just, is this tube what we think it is? Did it come from where we think it came from? Was it collected at the time point? And because everyone fills out things slightly differently, there's a lot of effort to have to clean up that and sometimes a very manual process. So that, that's one big thing for us, for sure. Yeah. Okay, great. So this is a, a, a exactly, it's a common problem. It happens all the time and it's it can waste a lot of energy or you can end up with um, data that's hard or impossible to analyze because it's so messy. Um, so there are a couple different things you can do in this type of situation. Um, I think a gut reaction, or, you know, often a, an easy solution is set up a system that has drop-down menus where there's fixed options and people can't type things in and they and their fields are all required. They can't, you know, they have to fill them in. Um, and then what you do is you get consistent data, problem solved. And the issue is that not very much time passes before there's um, an exception where I don't, it doesn't actually make sense to fill out that field or the value that I need isn't in the field. And so there's this, I think, um, sort of overfitting that can happen to the current requirements where business changes or exceptions come up and those, those, those um, sort of solutions uh, fall flat. Um, maybe not completely flat, they have benefits though, but um, you're also talking about some situations where potentially doing everything electronically is not easy or, po or possible. Um, you talked about manifests, so there might be things shipped through the mail and so forth. So that's another issue. Um, so a couple of other approaches. One to consider, and I don't know that I would use this in, in every case, but um, it is getting easier to create um, machine learning models that can do some simple um, corrections to data. So you can build something that takes the corrections that you've made in the past, or even takes just the, the set of expected values and tries to map things to the closest one. Um, those are those are solutions that can be useful. Um, they're not perfect, so I'll, I'll move on to the second one because um, one of the things I like to do is rather than leave something wide open, which is I think the first situation you talked about. So you can imagine people write on a piece of paper whatever they want, they fit right in Excel, whatever they want. And rather than going the opposite way and giving them only a fixed set of four options and nothing else, um, I like to look at the opportunity to get things 
95% correct and flag things, send warnings, let people know when there are things that need to be corrected and so, or, or just reviewed. So this could be true with a machine learning model. It's not going to be correct 100% time. We'll look at the accuracy score and decide if a user needs to be flagged. Similarly, if what we could do is take data from your manifest and get it into a system and when a field is missing, maybe we don't have somebody look at it every single time, but if we can put in place a few checks to say, this is a situation where we need somebody to review this, then hopefully, you know, hopefully we can come to a place where the burden changes from three people spending all week looking through the manifest of every single um, item that comes in to something where maybe once a week, somebody looks through the five manifests that, that, you know, seemed odd or seemed out of place or had something going on with them. So, um, you know, that's not a complete answer because there's all these questions about what's, what needs to be flagged and what doesn't need to be flagged. Um, but I do think that that's a perspective that helps because it's easy to take the approach of letting people do whatever they want or locking it down completely um, and thinking that you've solved the problem. So I don't know. Is that a good, does that make sense? Is that helpful? Yeah, ab absolutely. And again, I, I realize I keep talking about some parallels between our businesses here, but you know, one of the things about the work that we do requires a level of control that works as, as you put it, let's say 95% of the time, right? And you have to be able to deal with the outlier circumstances and think through those. You want to control as much as you can so that you can focus on the outliers as opposed to this repetitive process that unfortunately you use for everything and it allows you to miss the outliers, which is really where you want to spend your time. Um, you know, there's a budget of money, there's a budget of time, and often the budget of time is the one that's most costly to the drug development program. The faster you can move, uh, the quicker you can turn things around, you can continue to build momentum on that drug development process. If you're spending your time dealing with data sets that are routine, that can be analyzed <clears throat> a little more easily so that you can focus on those really rare circumstances that may be telling that require that extra effort, that's a better use of your time than just generally doing the same thing over and over. I, I'm also struck by something that, um, you know, you, you think about um, the customers probably that we're, we're both dealing with. I'm curious, how often do you have people come to SciMed that they've already got the big data set and they haven't really thought about it yet. It's the ship's already sailed. You're trying to retrofit into something that's already taken place as opposed to the proactive customer that says, mm -hmm. we're two years out from doing this. Can you help build us a solution because we're anticipating what's going to happen? And, yeah. and then I'll ask you, which one would you prefer? I think I probably know the answer to that one, but, <laughs> but how often is it, is it after the fact that people are trying to fix a problem as opposed to anticipate a problem beforehand? Yeah, both both of those are seem fairly common. I don't think that it's one far more often than the other. Um, in some cases, if they're coming and they don't have a big data set and a problem yet, what they're saying is, we just need a place to start entering this data. We need to start to start capturing it. And basically, we know that Excel is not good enough. Um, so, can you build? You know, again, can you build us a database to to capture the data and then? Um, so sometimes we can start asking them ahead of time questions about where is the data set headed so that we can just be thinking and preparing a little bit for size and complexity and consistency. Um, 
when people come who already have a large data set and potentially issues with it, um, theoretically, I should like that less. But let me tell you, one of the things that's really nice about it is they really appreciate they appreciate it much, much more when you solve those problems. Um, you know, they felt stuck. They were saying our current, you know, I don't know, our current database administrator, our developers uh, were really were struggling or things were getting worse and worse, slower and slower. Um, so I, I really like it when uh, people can, you know, appreciate what we're what we're doing and how it's helping. So you also have an interesting perspective. You work across different clients in this space. How often do you see circumstances where we learned from this prior experience with customer A that we can now more rapidly apply that to customers B through you know E, uh, and then again you know you find another set of challenges that become the next value that you add to it. But sitting outside of companies like ours, you must see a lot of common problems that you have some solutions for, and then always finding new ones out there to to solve too. Yeah, for sure. The problems can easily be, um, you know, we figured out how to solve it over here and we can easily move that to other industries or other areas. Um, there are times when you could, it could look different. You just have to take a step back and say, oh, well, this is bacteria and those are antibodies and this is, you know, these are cancer drugs. Um, but like, like we're saying, the problems are really the same. It's really things like consistency, accuracy, um, things just being so too slow because there's a billion records in the database. So those are, those types of problems are things that um, don't really matter exactly what the client is doing or exactly what the data set is. Yeah. So I, I think that's one of the things that always fascinates me about this type of approach. I'm always curious that for bioagilytics, let's say we've worked on a thousand of a particular type of assay. They're for different drugs, for different disease areas, different companies, maybe under different regulatory guidelines, depending on the time, you know, if we did something 10 years ago versus what the current expectations are today. But one of the things that I think we in the industry don't do particularly well is we don't learn across all of those data sets, even though there are so many different elements to them and are unique to particular projects. There are some common aspects to them that I wonder if we could step back and analyze all of that data that we have, are there ways for us to shave 10% of the time off of this? Because we know that 80% of the time, if you choose this particular buffer, it's going to be more likely to work than the other 20% that you tried as other buffer. That type of learning and sort of deep learning of all the data that we generate, I think is best suited to a company like yours or efforts like yours, which is to sit outside of it dispassionately and just look across all the programs to look for paths forward that are more efficient and, and, and beneficial, I think, to the customers. You know, there's something really nice about um, having people from different perspectives talk about and work on a problem like that. Um, I think that you can take a bench scientist and they have su such in-depth knowledge and um, sort of tactile experience with which buffers worked and which didn't that has a, a huge amount of value. Um, you know, we have people who have a, a balance of some computer science, machine learning, and science, and can kind of think about the problem from um, both perspectives at once. 
And then it's also really helpful to sometimes have people who know how to think about analyzing data and look at which buffers are best and not best without, without even knowing what a buffer is. They've never seen a bench before and they say, uh, I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a stab at this and they're going to take a different perspective and come, you know, potentially come out with, um, useful information on their own, or, you know, you get them in a room, have a conversation with the bench scientist and maybe the, the person in the middle too. And, um, so I think all those perspectives are, are really, really valuable. Yeah, I love that outsider's perspective to things. I, I think I'm a huge advocate inside of our teams um, that to some degree, we're all scientists. We may, may not be trained formally in a particular disease area or, or specialization, but most of us spend a lot of time just looking at the world around us and saying, you know, here's what here's what I'm observing. How do I solve this problem? Um I don't think that an accountant that looks at bar graphs on an Excel spreadsheet, it doesn't matter what the bar graph is, they can tell patterns that exist, whether it was generated by a piece of scientific equipment at the bench or uh, a calculation of revenue that was being generated for the past quarter. It's all about pattern analysis and figuring out what works and what what doesn't in those circumstances. well, that's that's fascinating. So, so what do you think? You know, is the biggest value that you're able to bring to to the majority of your customers? Is it that that outside sort of problem solving perspective to them? Uh, yeah. Do you do you see the industry differently than we do? Maybe by being on the inside of it. Yeah, I mean, it's a combination. I think that the the problem problem solving perspective is is you know it's such a high level answer. It doesn't really tell you how it helps, but I think that perspective brings 30 or 100 other things that help. Um, also, the experience that we have, like you mentioned, with other similar projects and clients um, all help. But, it, you know, in general, the, the things that I, I find are most effective are to take whatever problems in front of us and break it down into smaller and smaller problems. And keeping those smaller problems as independent as possible. Sometimes they're intertwined, but sometimes we can find ways to say that these problems are really two, two independent things. You remember a minute ago, I mentioned, if we talk about having large data sets, um, the first thing I did was say, break that down into five problems that come from having large data sets. And some of those we might be able to solve independently of the other problems and start chipping away at things, but also the the solutions that you're going to come up with are going to be simpler, faster to put in place, easier to change. Um, So whenever I see a problem, one of the things I like to do is to start breaking that into smaller problems. Um, In terms of implementing solutions to those problems, I like to um, start small, especially with what we're building. I like to say start small, but think big. So Let's discuss and make sure we're keeping in mind the big picture, all of the problems, where we're headed, all of the big picture. But then when we start implementing, solve the smallest problems that we can that are beneficial, maybe find the the biggest pain points, um, the biggest value, right? So it could even be um, the quickest thing to get up and running um, and start to solve parts of the problem as simply and quickly as possible. But again, keeping the big picture in mind. Um, and I think that perspective leads to much better solutions. You mentioned the importance of moving quickly in the industry. And um, it's so common for projects to stagnate, for them to take two or three years to get started. And by then, everything that you're working on has changed. Um, so 
it, you know, you, we have to be prepared for that, but starting small, solving things, so solving small problems and um, solving them quickly is, is a way to really be effective and have value and know that our clients are um, getting benefits and, you know, get, you know, reaping what, what they've, what they've sown. Is that a, is that a negative statement? <laughs> the positive version of reaping what they've sown. I guess it can go both ways, right? I mean, the, the whole premise is that the the upfront work that you do is going to yield something. So if you do a better job upfront, yes. Uh, so reaping what you what you sow can be a good thing in that context. I I also like the idea of, of kind of the small problem solution. I think that helps in a different sort of cultural aspect inside of a lot of companies, which is change management. That putting in new processes, new ways of thinking about things. If you try to do something so massive. It's very hard for people to wrap their head around these huge changes, but these little sort of incremental changes uh, are easier for people to adapt to, I think, from just that, that standpoint. I think also it allows you to pivot and learn as you're going through it, because I think probably a lot of the time, what you think is the big picture, when you get into it, you start to find out, wow, there are a whole bunch of things that you really haven't considered you find out while you're in the process. And if you're tied to the end result without being able to change along the way, it makes it that much harder. So small incremental steps allows for easier pivoting during the process. Yeah, exactly. I like to say, move fast and ask for feedback. Um, yes. The idea that we have a whole plan, that we take a year and a half to make a whole plan where we know we've accounted for everything, then we start building. Inevitably, you start building it and then you find out some new things. So. We have to start building things and get. we have to make sure we get feedback to, to, to keep it on track. But a lot of that is about the perspective and the un, um, sort of being on the same page with everybody who's working on the project and the client and the end users. Because if you move quickly, start building before you know the whole plan, um, you can deliver things and people look at it and say, what are, are you kidding? This isn't going to do it. You missed this and this and this. And I say, well, yes, we did. But now you just said that I'm going to go add those three things a week from now, we're going to have a system that does what you want, plus those three things. And if we had sat in this boardroom trying to come up with a plan and not started building anything, it would be two more years before we'd have anything. And, you know, we'd have that same right. thing in front of you. So there's a little perspective shift on there and seeing things that are um, not fully formed or need a little bit, you know, prototypes, that kind of thing. Let's start with some wireframes. Boom. Let's do a prototype. Boom. Let's start using it. Boom. Now let's, you know, feedback along the way. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in pilot programs. I think that's the best way to get people in there, to get that feedback, especially when it's the difference between someone engaging from, let's say, the top-down approach of here's what we need, as opposed to the bottoms up, the actual user, the actual end client of this work. When they get in there, they're going to see things that are, are just you can't anticipate until you're you roll up your sleeves and get in there and work on it. So that, that's an awesome thing. So um, from from your perspective, again, I think it's interesting. You kind of see a lot of different companies in the space. What what are the common problems? What are the things that um, that we're all kind of bumping into that you feel like uh, better software engineering, better support could help us with? Yeah, well, we've already mentioned some of them, so um, I'll, re I'll repeat myself on some of those, and I think I have a few more in mind too. Um, you know, big picture, we see problems with uh, workflows being slow and inefficient, um, with um, having too much data, 
having inconsistent data, um, accessibility and authentication. So how do we control who's who can see it, who's supposed to be able to see it uh, or work with it? And data that's messy and inconsistent um, is, is common in all of that. Um, you know, when people are trying to solve these problems, they look for, they think about what, what are my options? So um, Excel is an option. Are there systems that exist to manage this type of data already? Um, maybe there are no systems. Maybe the systems out there are too rigid or limited, so they won't let me do, you know, what, quite what I need. Um, we often see issues with um, projects getting started, moving slowly and not getting completed, or, or moving slowly in the right direction, but by the time they get there, uh, you know, real life has changed. The world has changed. Um, we see issues with data that's stored in a variety of different systems. Um, and that causes inconsistency, but also can be problematic or make life harder when you're trying to do analysis of that data. So how do we manage that? You know, those are easy. These are, some of these are easy to solve, but um, again, these are common problems where you just have to spend some time talking to them and, and setting something up. Um, data analysis. So things like bioinformatics, um, bioinformaticians create scripts and um, it can be situations like it only the scripts only live on one person's computer. So that person comes in and analyzes the data, but if they're out of the office or some, nobody else knows how to do it, um, sometimes the scripts are not really uh, legible or maintainable by anybody other than the person who wrote them. Um, it's perhaps they only run on that person's laptop and that can be quite slow. Um, so, you know, those are uh, cr creating data analysis pipelines that are manageable, maintainable, scalable um, are things that, uh, that um, we see on, on a fairly regular basis. Um, there are probably more, but maybe that's a good, a good quick overview of some, some common ones. Yeah, that's a pretty, that's a pretty lengthy sort of area of impact, which is nice, right? To be able to, to work to solve all of those problems for so many different folks. Um, you know, one of the interesting things you mentioned bioinformatics and it gets us back into the big data space and so on. Um, I, I think oftentimes in the clinical trial space in particular, uh, patients are precious. The samples that are generated from the patients on those trials are precious. Um, we try to generate as much data, get as much information as we can from them, but it has led to these just reams of data that sometimes I'm not sure we actually know what to do with. Um, do, do you see, you know, we're at a point where, especially with genetic medicines and personalized medicine, a lot of genetic data, uh, full sequences from people using next-gen sequencing, that is a lot of information to process just from the sheer you know, gigabytes of data that has to be stored someplace. But how do you work through that? Do you work with a lot of companies that are doing that? And what are the what are the things you see that are working for them now? What's not working in that space? Yeah, I'm going to get you an answer to that in, in just a moment. But I'll say this has some overlap with um, issues of having data in multiple systems. So there is a tendency to want to move everything into one central um, system that can manage everything that you do. And so then, uh, you know, you have these issues with when you migrate data from system A to system B, it's, they're not in the same format. And how do I manage those things? And then the data set is large. One of the things I do is try to separate tra transactional data, data that we're using day to day. Somebody's updating. Maybe we get a genome sequence. It's coming in. 
from the data that I need to use to do a particular job or solve a particular problem. So I'll break those apart in my mind and then think about how the system should be set up. But for example, we could have a very large data set with full genomes of who knows how many people. And then what I would consider doing is deciding what parts of those data do I need to do the job that you're talking about. You know, if we're looking at precision cancer treatment of some type of disease, it's likely that we don't need the full genome. We probably only need one, one section, one gene, one section. And um, what we can do is we can create a secondary copy, pull from this main source, create a secondary copy of just the data we need to solve this problem. We have a much smaller data set to work with at that point. We can easily set up processes to synchronize, uh, keep my secondary data set. I, you know, I always make sure we know what's the source of truth. Um, where is the main, the core place that this data lives? We say, okay, it's the full genome over here. I'm going to start making copies of a subset of the data into a secondary database that has only one job. And then I can optimize that data set to do that job. And I can do it really very efficiently. Now that I'm, I'm making some assumptions there, There's, you could always throw in new requirements where um, we have to rethink things. But I think that concept of, um, you know, we don't have to have everything in one central place and only work from that place. We can, we can break things apart in careful and conscientious ways where we don't introduce new problems, because you can also introduce new problems by doing that. Um, but we can break things apart in, in careful ways and have the data that I need to do a particular job. And it makes life so much easier, so much simpler um, than trying to, to navigate a large, uh, you know, huge pile of data every single time. Yeah, same common theme, right? Find find small problems, small solutions, instead of trying to bite off too much at once. So that's amazing. Well, Adam, it, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Really glad that we had a chance to get you on the podcast here, learn a little bit about this. I'd love to come back and talk to you at some point in the future also, maybe a deeper dive into a particular area. But um, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Any last words for you before we close things out here? No, this has been great. It's been fantastic to talk to you. I appreciate you taking the time, Jim, and I can't wait to talk to you again. All right. Great. Thanks, Adam. The Molecular Moments podcast sponsored by Bioagilytics is an ongoing conversation about the various nuances of drug development and bioanalysis. In each episode, we sit down with a different industry leader to explore their area of expertise, the industry as a whole, and the mentors who help them become the scientists they are today. It's a podcast for scientists by scientists. Listen and subscribe to Molecular Moments today on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks so much, everyone.